0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, well, good morning, Creekside. Good to see you. I'm Jeff, one of the pastors here. If it is your first time with us, thank you so much for joining us for worship today. We are delighted to have you with us. One other quick announcement, Uh, we have a baptism coming up next Sunday, second service. And yeah, you can applaud that. That's cool. We applaud baptism here uh, because baptism is the way that you go public with your faith in Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, that is part of coming to faith in Jesus. There's the private heart internal commitment, then there's the public confession. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it does show the world that you are a Christian And Jesus commands it, and I think it is a critical step in everyone's discipleship to Jesus to be baptized. So you've got an opportunity next week. If you have never been baptized, we would love to do it next week. You can contact Rachel Butler. Her email should be in the bulletin. Sign up, and we'd love to celebrate your new life in Christ with you. All right, today's a big day. We finish up 1 Corinthians. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we tie a bow on this series. So, Jesus, thank you that you have made us your possession, that you have brought us into your family, that we are now the temple of God. Spirit, you are here. You dwell among us and within us, and so we pray now that you would teach us. God, sharpen my mind. Give me the strength to say what is pleasing to you and helpful to your people, and show us that our only comfort, Jesus, comes in belonging to you pray that that would be the bedrock truth of our lives. We ask it in your name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. What is the one thing you cannot lose? The one thing that makes life bearable. If everything in your life fell apart, is there some bedrock truth that would sustain you? And if so, What is it? That's really another way of asking this question. What is your only comfort in life or in death? And that is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, a confession of faith written back in 1563. And here's the answer. What is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death? to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. What the writers of the catechism are saying is that our only real consolation, our only enduring hope, the the one thing that remains when everything falls away, the one certainty, the one bedrock thing in life that you can rely on is that you belong to Jesus. And, And the writers of this catechism weren't trying to be creative. Or original. In fact, they're just trying to summarize what the Bible says. And in a sense, they are just parroting what Paul says throughout 1 Corinthians. As he puts it in 1 Corinthians 3, you are Christ's. You are Christ's. Now, this is interesting. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, according to Paul, the best news in the universe is that I don't belong to me, but that I belong to Jesus. And that's a startling statement, because if you were to write a creed for our cultural moment, if you were going to write a secular catechism right now, it would sound exactly the opposite of this, wouldn't it? The secular catechism, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am my own. And that regardless of what happens, that I, body and soul, and life and death belong to me and no one else. That is the narrative in our culture. I am the captain of my soul. I belong to myself. To thine own self be true. As one woman said to me at the end of the day, all you've got is you. Or in the words of one of the great lyricists of my generation, Jessica Simpson, (laughs) I belong to me. And she goes on, I don't need somebody to complete me. I complete myself. Nobody's got to belong to somebody else. I belong to me. I don't belong to you. My heart is my possession. I'll be my own reflection. I think pop music has actually gotten better since I was in high school. But um, but that's the idea, right? I belong to myself. I'm the author of my story, the captain of my destiny. I have to determine my values, my priorities that that might be the most deeply held belief in our society and if there's one place people look for consolation for certainty for some north star in life that's it that i own myself and scripture says the exact opposite why is that we're going to talk about that today as we conclude this series on first corinthians hey so if you've been with us congratulations 10 months 36 sermons later, we finally finish this letter. Next Sunday, we're going to start a very short book and go back to the Old Testament and look at the prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you like to pronounce it. I have no idea. Habakkuk is a great little book uh, because it talks about the question that troubles us more than any other question. In a world filled with so much evil, how can we be sure that God is good? So we're spending three weeks in Habakkuk, that's where we're going next. But today let's tie a bow on this series on First Corinthians. So normally, you know, if you conclude a sermon series, you want to try to wrap up the book, right? What, what did we just learn? What's the takeaway? And that's a funny question with First Corinthians, isn't it? Because what is what is this book about? What's it not about? I mean, it doesn't appear that that Paul talks about one thing in this book, does he? He talks about everything. It's a a dizzying variety of topics. And and if you look at this book and read through it, it just kind of looks like a mess, doesn't it? And that's because the Corinthians were a mess. They were a blessed mess, but they were a mess. They had lots of drama. They had all sorts of problems in their church. They had all sorts of theological questions that they were asking. And so Paul, a good spiritual dad, patiently talks them through their problems, answers their questions, and shows how the gospel connects to every problem they have, every question they ask. That's what he's doing. Can we say any more? Is there a through line? Is there any theme that that ties this book together? Well, today I'm going to try. And I'm not saying it's the theme, but I'm saying it's a theme that that we might have passed over a little bit in this series. But if you look at it more closely, it intersects with all of the issues the Corinthians were dealing with. And it's something that Paul hints at right at the beginning of his letter. And it's this idea that we are Christ's possession. We belong to Jesus. Remember how Paul started the letter? He says, to the church... Of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, I underlined two words, and those are the words you should notice sanctified and saints. Sanctified is what Paul calls them, and because they're sanctified, the Corinthians are what? Saints. The the Greek word is hagias, that both of those words have in common. It just means holy. To be sanctified is to be made holy, and to be made holy is to be a saint, which is sometimes translated holy one. And this is an astounding thing, isn't it? Paul says every member of the Corinthian church, every genuine believer in Jesus, even the most wicked, lazy, licentious, divisive, wretched Corinthians, They're not fundamentally a sinner. They're fundamentally what? A saint. When you think of yourself, is that what you see? I'm a sinner. And you are. And I am too. But your permanent identity, your enduring identity is a saint. Now, Now, how can Paul say that about these Corinthians, who he later calls carnal? How are these carnal Christians saints? Well, it's not because of who they are, it's because of whose they are. Paul says they are made holy in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it means to be made holy? Often we think about holiness as behavior, it's just really good saintly people like Mother Teresa or your grandma or some other old woman. Um, but it's, a, it's just, just, like, just this extraordinarily godly person that's a saint. To be holy in the Bible, though, it's not fundamentally about behavior. It's about a status. It's about an objective reality. To be holy means you belong holy to God. It means you're set apart for him. It means you're his possession. And we see that in the Old Testament. All sorts of things could be made holy. God would make a shovel holy. That didn't mean the shovel had good quiet times. It meant the shovel had been set apart for who? God and his purposes. We have been set apart for God, which means we belong to Jesus. He has taken possession of us. We belong to him, not ourselves. Therefore, we are holy. And in one way or another, that idea that you are possessed by Christ answers every issue the Corinthians were dealing with every issue we're dealing with. And so I wanna talk about that today because I think in our culture, maybe the greatest barrier people have to Christianity is that it's restrictive. It's oppressive. That if I see myself as belonging to God or I see Jesus as my master, it's going to constrain me in some way. I won't be able to be authentically me if I belong to Jesus. And yet, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, according to Paul, the best news in the world is that you get to belong to Jesus and not to yourself. So as we wrap up this series, here's the question and answer. Why is belonging to Jesus infinitely better than belonging to me? Two points, and they aren't three and four. I don't know how that got messed up in the formatting. I promise it's just two. One is that you get in Jesus something you can't get by yourself, and that's a stable, sure status. A sense of self that doesn't change. Second, and I think more startlingly, belonging to Jesus is the only way to get freedom. In fact, belonging to yourself, you'll be a slave. Belong to Jesus, you'll be truly free. So, Paul makes both these points. I think they are the points we have to understand, especially in our culture, if we're going to think about the barriers we have to overcome to trusting in Jesus. So let's look at first status. If I belong to Jesus, I can have a sure status, a stable identity. If I belong to myself, I will never have that, ever. Let's return to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says this, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ. The first service is generally good at this call and response thing, that was a little disappointing, okay? All right, you are Christ, thank you, and Christ is God's. Thank you, okay. Don't let me down, all right? I got to, I talked to the second service about how good you are at this, okay? So just please, all right. You are Christ's. We've seen that the Corinthians were very status conscious. And that's because they lived in a culture like ours that was very status conscious. Corinth was a young city, it was a prosperous city, it was a city without any ruling class, which meant you could go to Corinth, you could work hard, and there was upward mobility. You could climb the social ladder. There wasn't a ceiling like there was in other parts of the ancient world, but you had to be ruthless and cutthroat and outwork people and look out for who, you. And you had to outwork people and all of life was the status game for honor and reputation and power. And that determined your worth in society. And the Corinthians brought that right into the church. And so they want honor and reputation in the church. And the way they're getting it is by saying, look at what leader I follow. I follow Peter. I follow Paul. It's the status game. They bring it right into the church. And what you see in Corinth, what you see in us is that every human being has a boast. Paul says, don't boast in men. Don't boast in the leader you follow. All of us have a boast, something that gives us what? Status. Now, you might not say the boast out loud, look at me, I'm good at this. But it's that little thing inside of you that you say, this is what makes me, me. Special. This is why I matter. It's, it's this. It's when things go wrong, when you suffer disappointment, it's that thing in you that says, at least I'm this. This. You ever do that? At least I'm good at my job. At least I'm a good parent. At least I have a nice house. At least I'm prettier than her. Right? At least. And, and when that thing at the core of who you are gets threatened, what do you feel? Anxiety. Inferiority. So, so I'll be honest, this is how it works for me. If I see a preacher who looks like me in his late 30s, and he preaches a great sermon. I mean, he just kills it. A little part of me goes. Ugh. And that's messed up, right? Now, now, why does a part of me do that? Because some subterranean level says the thing that makes me special is being a better preacher than other preachers. And I can't be okay with myself unless that's true. And all of us have that thing. The Corinthians needed that thing. We all need that thing, some stable sense of our own identity. Okay, in our culture, where do we get that? The answer is clear. I belong to me, so who is responsible to give myself a stable identity? Me. (laughs) what I say about myself, what I affirm about myself. If I practice self-esteem, I will determine what my worth is. I will determine what a good life looks like. And if I meet my own standards, I matter and I'm significant. Have you heard that before? That's all you hear. And there's two big problems with it. The first one is this. Let's say I succeed and convince myself that I'm an important person, that I'm enough, that I'm significant. Well, does that mean I have a healthy sense of self, or does it mean I'm a narcissist? Because the answer is not necessarily clear. Back in 1979, Christopher Lash uh, wrote a very influential book called The Culture of Narcissism, in which he warned, he said, our culture will become increasingly narcissistic, and that pathological narcissism will get diagnosed more and more, and it turned out he was exactly right. that, That this was going to happen that self-esteem was going to be warped into this extreme self-concern, justifying behavior, and that people would become increasingly less focused on the needs of others. Because if you believe this message all the time, I'm perfect just as I am. I'm right. I'm special. It can create narcissism. So in 1963, 12% of people agreed with the statement, I'm an important person. In 1992, About 80% of adolescents agreed with the statement, I am an important person. And some people have called that the narcissism epidemic. Now, here's the danger. If you justify yourself in your own eyes, you have become self-justified. There's a biblical term for that. You know what it is? Self-righteous. I am right. I'm convinced of it. And when you're most convinced that you are righteous, you are most blind to what? (laughs) that you're not, <laughs> that you have problems, that you might be ignoring the needs of others, that you might not be caring about other people. And if you're convincing yourself of that, you actually become incapable of seeing the needs or feelings of other people. And you see that sometimes in the way people apologize today. So a yeah, narcissistic apology. You know, I'm sorry for how people felt about my decision and how my actions were interpreted. But at the end of the day, I had to do what was right for me which is really a way of saying, sorry, not sorry, right? And that's one danger in establishing your own status is narcissism. Here's the second problem. Maybe you don't establish your own sense of worth, your own justification. Let's say you fail at it. Then it's this crushing weight that I finally have to find this thing that makes me matter and makes me authentically me. Good luck that is a treadmill, because how do you know you're enough ever? Alan Noble says it like this, "Um, the great difficulty is that if we are our own, then our moral horizons cannot be given, only chosen. And that means that the only assurance we can ever have that we are living morally must come from where? Within ourselves. How do I know that I'm good enough? How do I know that I'm enough? How do I know if I've met my own standard? Because people's standards change throughout their lives. People change. It is a black hole finding how to be authentic to you and be okay with yourself. Belonging to yourself is terrible news. It's terrible news. Do you know what's far better? Belonging to Jesus. Belonging to Jesus. Because Paul says, look, you are Christ's. Christ takes possession of you. And you know what Paul does? He just says here that Christ will just share every good thing he has with you. Every good thing, including his own status as righteous. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our what? righteousness and sanctification and redemption therefore as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and Paul is just quoting Jeremiah 9 there let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me When Christ takes possession of us, he gives us his own status as righteous, as pure, as holy. So guess what? In him, you're justified forever. No need to establish your identity ever again, but it's a gift. It's a gift. You didn't achieve it. You didn't discover it in you. He just gave it to you. And do you know what? That is the only thing in the universe that can give you humility and confidence at the same time that's it. Humility that I couldn't achieve some status of righteousness. It had to be given to me, which meant actually there was something wrong with me. So when you tell me there's something wrong with me, I'm not surprised. You see what the Bible says about me, I got some issues. But that's fine, because here's how Jesus sees me because I belong to him. And I have an identity in him that I did not achieve. And it's an identity I cannot lose. And so finally in Jesus, you can get over yourself and be okay with yourself and stop thinking about yourself and actually begin thinking about other people because you have a status in him that you cannot lose. Does that make sense? That's the first reason. belong to Jesus is better than belonging to yourself. Second reason, and I think this is the most startling of all, the second reason it's better to belong to Jesus than to belong to you is that if you try to belong to yourself, you will be a slave. You will. And the only way to get truly free and to have the freedom worth having is to be possessed by Christ and be his slave. And in our minds, that sounds like a complete contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Because for us as Westerners, freedom means freedom from constraint, Any constraint limits my freedom. And it's funny, the Corinthians thought exactly the same thing. Remember what they said back in chapter 6? Remember their little slogan? All things are lawful for me. It's a good American saying, isn't it? That was their view of sex. That was their view of life more generally. I have the right, the authority to do what I want. I can be a law unto myself. Now, if that is the freedom worth having, then constraints can only be threats, right? Anything that limits my freedom is the worst thing of all, and then Christianity is a straitjacket, it's a nightmare. And I think for many people in the West, that's their idea. I cannot be free if I belong to someone else, I cannot be free if anything constrains me. I have to be free from at all times. And if there's any purpose in life that constrains me, then I'm not free. Uh, There's a great scene in I, Robot. You remember that movie? It's 20 years old. All of my movie illustrations are from 20 years ago because that's when I stopped watching movies. Um, There's a great scene in I, Robot where the main character, the main robot named Sonny, he fulfills the objectives of his design program. So he's fulfilled his purpose as a robot, and he's like, oh, no. I fulfilled my objective. What do I do now? And Will Smith's character has this great line. He says, I guess you'll have to find your way like the rest of us, Sonny. That's what it means to be free. That is the quintessential American statement, isn't it? What does it mean to be free? To figure out what you want to do at any given time. And if I belong to myself, that's exactly what it means to be free. That at every moment, I have to be totally free to do whatever I want There are two big problems with that. First, freedom is not simple. It's not that simple because you know what? Every decision involves a trade-off in freedom. If you choose to do this, you're saying no to all of this and you're constraining yourself in some way and you can never fully experience anything until you choose not to do other things and constrain yourself. You can never be free from everything. And there are trade-offs in every decision you make. If I choose to eat horribly, I won't be free from chronic health issues. If I spend all day on the internet, I won't be free to focus because I've hijacked my attention. If I choose to spend all my money, I won't be free from anxiety because I'll have debt. There is no absolute freedom. Here's the second problem. We all have this intuitive sense that just because you can doesn't mean you should. I mean, the older you get, how many, how many of these freely made choices do you look back on and just kind of go, Ugh. right? Why did I eat so horribly and get these health issues? Why did I spend all that time on the internet and hijack my attention? Why did I spend all my money and have crippling debt? And what you realize is the things you freely choose enslave you. And there's this great lie in our culture that if we just have more options, we'll have more freedom, we'll have more happiness. That's just paralyzing. It's paralyzing because you never live into to any decision you make and constrain yourself. And so you never get the purpose of freedom, which is to choose something. You always got to keep your options open. And if you don't believe me, that's every dating show ever on TV. It's just like, I I feel like this might be the one, but I'm not sure I feel the right thing. And if I just wait to feel this thing, but I have to say no to a million other people, right? And it's just paralyzing. It's slavery to indecision. The reality is this. The reason we'd want freedom is the freedom to pursue the best life. Freedom from is only good if it gives you freedom for the best thing. And belonging to yourself isn't a great freedom. It's not at all, because ultimately what we realize, the older we get, is that we're actually slaves to desires and that we are better at sabotaging our lives than anyone else. Paul says there's something better. He says Christ sets us free. First, he frees us from our own desires. Remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 6? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. What does that mean, bought with a price? Bought out of what? Slavery. You were a slave to yourself. You were a slave to desires. You were a slave to things that were killing you. And Jesus bought you to get you out of that cycle of self-destruction, out of wickedness, out of displeasing God. But he didn't save you so you could go do whatever you wanted. He saved you so you'd belong to who? Him. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are His. And now we are free from the tyranny and bondage to sin that we were in because we were part of Adam's fallen race. So you're free from desires. Guess what else you're free from in Christ? You're free from the demands of others. Paul goes on to say, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Here's the other thing you realize when you belong to yourself. You don't just live to meet your own expectations. Whose expectations do you meet? everyone around you. You're a slave to the world. You're a slave to the culture. You're a slave to what other people expect of you. And Paul says, Christ frees you from that as well. So it's not about meeting other people's expectations anymore or getting other people's approval. Paul says in Galatians 6, I was crucified to the world in Jesus. The world's expectations are dead to me now. The only thing that matters is pleasing my master, Jesus. And so you're free from your own desires. You're free from these burdensome demands of other people. You're free in Jesus. But here's the best thing about freedom. You're free from these things for Christ's purpose. You're free for to live into your design. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, no one outside of Christ can put a demand on me. He's the master. No one else. I only have to meet his expectations. He says, even though I am free, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. My life's mission, Paul says, is to fulfill Christ's purpose, and I serve people not to meet their demands, but to see them come to Jesus and love them. And you can't actually serve someone if you are held captive to the approval of man, right? If it's just about pleasing other people and making you happy with them, the Bible calls that the fear of man. Modern psychology calls it codependence, right? That I have to keep helping people and serving people so they'll be okay with me and I'll be okay with myself. Only in Jesus do you finally get free to just love people for their sake, not because you get anything out of it. You already have Christ. You can just serve people for their benefit, which means you can say hard things to them because you love them. You can say no to them because you love them. It's, it's about following Christ. And, and the best our culture can offer is just figuring out, oh, maybe I'll do what's best for me. Maybe I'll draw a boundary here. Maybe. And there's wisdom in that, but the only clarity, the only North Star comes from saying, no, I'm a bondservant of Christ. What's pleasing to him? I will do that and no more. And then I finally get over myself and can serve people for their sake, not for my own, not to get something out of them. And all of this talk about freedom, it goes back to a very core idea. See, the reality is we have a design as human beings. We are made for certain things. We're not made for other things. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, the body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. Our bodies were created for Jesus and Jesus to dwell with us. That's our design function is to live with him. And so if you're not living according to your design, are you free? That's the second time you've let me down. Am I not? No, you're not. Man. All right. I mean, I didn't get much sleep last night. Did you? Did you not get sleep? Come on. You only get free when you live according to the purpose for which you were created. And there is no freedom in living outside of your created purpose. I, I used to read a devotional to Addie called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And Addie's favorite story was about the foolish fish. The foolish fish. And it's a great little story. And it goes like this. What if a fish one day decided, I've had enough of being told what I can and can't do and only being allowed in water. I want to be free. I'm going to find my fortune on land and then jumped out of the water and onto the riverbank. How far do you think that foolish fish would get? Not very. The fish is not built for land and we are not built to be away from our heavenly father. If you are created, you are joyfully limited in all sorts of ways, and you will never find joy unless you embrace the limitations that your creator has put on you. You weren't created to be independent. You weren't created to be isolated. You weren't created to be self-determining. And so if you act outside your design, guess what? You will be a slave and you will be miserable. You'll be a fish-flopping on the land. Only by living in dependence on Jesus as his possession will you finally be free. There are only two options. Only two. Be a slave to Jesus and experience real freedom or be free from Jesus and be a slave. That's it. That's it. Um, This, I think, is the barrier for people in the West. I'll, I'll close with this. You know, if I belong to myself, do you know what that means? That fundamentally I'm alone in the universe. That's what it means. I'm free, but I am alone. I am created to be alone. I am not created for another. And and that might be the saddest thought of all. The, The truth is this. I think the reason we're so scared to be possessed by Jesus is because we don't want to be taken advantage of. People, when we belong to them, they can ruin our lives. They can destroy us. Will Jesus do that to us? Well, Jesus cannot take advantage of you because he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need to get something from you to be okay with himself. In fact, the God we see in in Jesus is a God who is perfectly self-sufficient in God's own nature and lives to joyfully give and not take. And so belonging to Jesus is the safest place to be. You will take advantage of yourself. Other people will take advantage of you. Jesus cannot take advantage of you. He only gives. Here's how the the Heidelberg Catechism ends. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, The body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You were not meant to just be someone. You were meant to know someone and belong to someone and you will never find out who you are until you belong to him. And coming to Jesus is saying, I want to get off the treadmill of proving myself. I cannot work my way to your favor. I cannot do enough to be Okay with myself, or even more importantly, to be right before you, God. I I am a slave. I want to know what I was created to be. So, Jesus, thank you for dying to give me a status that I can't lose and could never earn. And thank you for setting me free to live for my purpose, which is yours. And, And that's the only life worth having. Let's pray. And, and so, God, I pray for anyone who, who, who struggles to entrust themselves to you. I pray that they would see that, that, Jesus, you are only good to us all the time. Jesus, you are so committed to our good that you put our interests first. You came to die for us. Uh, Jesus, that you have nothing to take from us, that you only give And Jesus, that we can only find our lives by losing them in you. Lord, I pray that we'd see how good that is, that we're not alone, that we were made to belong and be cared for by you. And and Jesus, I pray that anyone with doubt or hesitancy in their heart, that you would overcome that and win them by your grace and your sweet love for them, Jesus. I ask it in your name. Amen.